0: One step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We are but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but
1: they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America.
0: We choose to go On the good earth. one small step for man,
1: one
0: giant leap for man.
2: welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Podcast episode 326 for the week of June 19th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, Sawyer. How are you doing today? I'm all right,
0: thank you. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Are you telling me 26 episodes and we're not even halfway through the year? I would... Say, that's pretty impressive. We're about halfway there, though. We're getting there. Yeah, boy. Well, hello, Sawyer. Hi.
2: (laughs) And welcome as well, Gina Hurley. Hey, how you doing? Great, thanks. And to any fathers out there who celebrated Father's Day this weekend, happy Bladed Father's Day, because none of us here are fathers. Let's get things kick-started with STS-135, the final flight of Atlantis, and the space shuttle program currently scheduled for July 8th. 2011 at a little after 11:20 ish in the morning, Eastern Daylight Savings Time, and uh, let's get a little update on how it's going because I know recently they just performed a tanking test.
3: Yeah, and that didn't go too well. There was a found they found a little bit of a, a, a leaky valve on uh, in there, and uh, so it looks like uh, there's a little bit of a problem. But um, never fear. Uh, it looks like they're going to go ahead and try to fix this thing beginning tomorrow, Monday. And uh, it should be ready to go by Friday, and that means tested and all that. And there's apparently enough slack in the, uh, in the timeline for the launch. So as of right now, uh, launch is still targeted um, for Friday, Um July 8th at 11.26 Eastern Daylight Time.
2: And if I'm correct, that was a valve on one of the main engines, I believe engine number three?
3: That's correct. Um, The flight, the timeline is starting to take some shape, too. Um, Looks like there are going to be uh, 12 flight days. Um, It will be seven uh, full dock days of operations between Atlantis and the ISS. Uh, There will be an EVA on this flight, but it will not be performed by uh, the Atlantis crew. Um, Just uh, real quick, that's uh, Chris Ferguson, the uh, commander, uh, Doug Hurley, pilot, uh, uh, MS-1, I think, is Sandy Magnus, and uh, MS-2, uh, Rex Waldheim. Those folks, neither one of the, any one of those folks are going to be performing any of the EVAs, but uh, uh, but Ron Garan and Mike Fossum will be going uh, to perform an EVA, and I think one of the tasks is, is to finally retrieve uh, the uh, failed uh, fuel, the no, failed uh, ammonia pump from last summer that uh, did not uh, that just went out and uh, caused a lot of havoc on board the ISS. Mark, you were at uh, KSC recently, and boy, do you have a lot of information for us. <laughs>
0: Yeah, STS-135 Atlantis has a lot going on. Uh, Up until just a few days ago, June 10th to be exact, my impression of Atlantis was, oh yeah, they're carrying the MPLM up. It's a logistics flight with with lots of cargo and ho-hum. And at the payload briefing, I found out how un-ho-hum this flight is. They're doing some new things that have never been done before, on the last flight of the space shuttle program. Uh, Joe Delisle started off the briefing. He's the NASA KSC mission manager for ULF-7, and FM-2, Raffaello, the MPLM. Out of all the MPLMs volume-wise, he said this is about the most packed of all. It has 9,500 pounds of cargo, but it is packed solid at 97% capacity by volume. It's going to be installed on flight day four at the node two nadir of the ISS. And from a little chart that I have found and, of course, lost in the interim, uh, looks like it's below AMS as far as location on the truss. Um, One of the other interesting things that's part of this is going to be a PicoSat, and I'll talk about that more later later. he introduced pretty quickly Mike Kinsler, the Boeing flow manager, and Mike talked about the MPLM and some late cargo installations. He said that they were asked to uh, do a study and see if they could do some late cargo stowage in the MPLM, and what they asked them to do was about one month prior to launch to come up with a plan where... The first two weeks of that one month period, they would do a late stow in the module before it went to the pad. Well, of course, now you know it's the cargo, uh, the MPLM and cargo is already at the pad, and we're better than two weeks out. So basically, what they did was they went from uh, right after Memorial Day weekend to June 9th, and they finished a late stow on MPLM. Now, what they did that was really different was there's a front hatch, which you think about when they bring the module to the ISS, it's what mates with the ISS hatch, and that's where they bring all the cargo in out. But there's also an aft aft section of the cargo module that's removed when it's in the space station processing facility. And typically, at some point, when they start putting cargo in there, they close that aft module closure. And they continued to stow through that front hatch and work their way from the back to the front. They did it backwards. They left at, – at some point, they closed the front hatch, and they worked from the front of the module out to the back. And in order to do this, they had to do – and this has never been done before – but they had to go to, uh, to the NASA program folks – and ask if they could change some of the rules. One of the things they usually do is a dry air purge of the module, and they've eliminated that. I told you how quick they finished it. It went out to the pad on the 16th. They finished it on the 9th. So uh, they actually had the, uh, I don't remember the proper name for it, but the big transporter that that carries the uh, payload canister, they had that in the SSPF, and we saw it which, you know, I think the next day or the day after was when the MPLM went into that payload canister. Um, Picosat goes out to the pad on Tuesday. Uh, Payload testing happens on the 24th. Racks that are part of the MPLM were enhanced to allow um, that aft end cone. There's an additional 400 pounds of cargo bags that go around the the circumference of the that aft end cone it makes kind of like a ring of cargo bags Um, the racks that hold all of these cargo bags in the MPLM can normally carry about 900 pounds the racks themselves weigh 180 pounds well they enhanced them they did a little bit of structural beefing up to allow these racks to carry 11 to 1200 pounds a piece and when you see the graphics that show how this is stowed And the fact that they normally stow in the top two locations on the rack, and they don't stow close to the floor, they're stowing everywhere. That's how they got to that 97%. Um, Just before they were uh, finishing their late stow, a crew from Johnson Space Center came out, and they referred to them as a choreography crew. And they looked at what their plans had been that they made up as to unpacking and repacking this on orbit – And then they were there for about an hour, and then the crew got there, and the crew got to look at it uh, as it was, you know, being loaded close to being completed. Uh, So this is some really interesting stuff, the fact that here it is, the last MPLM flight, and they're doing things in such a different way, and they're doing it, and they're taking 97 percent capacity going up. Uh, Coming down, they're going to bring down about two-thirds of that, so between 60 and 70 percent. And uh, they really made a difference in what they're going to be able to get to the ISS to support them for the next few years, which are critical until we get some additional cargo capacity with U.S. Uh, US rockets.
3: Mark, what about most of the science experiments that are flying
0: on uh, on scs 135 There's a whole battery of them, correct? Right. So with me being a Florida kid born and raised, you don't want me talking about a whole host of science payloads going up on the mid-deck. So instead, there's a fast-talking woman from, uh, I believe, from KSC. Anyway, Jennifer Wahlberg, she's going to talk about on this clip that I recorded June 10th, the payload briefing. She's going to talk about all this stuff going up on mid-deck. And if you hear anything that catches your attention, look it up dig into it, find out more about it, because that's the same thing we're doing, and it's really interesting.
1: Hey, my name is Jennifer Wahlberg. I work with the utilization processing team. Um, utilization meaning um, we're, the, we're the team that helps enable the research getting to and from station. Um, my charts are going to focus on the time critical uh, index that we'll be loading at L-1 day and the ones that we will recover on the runway when they come back. So the top half of the chart is um, what's going up for asset, and then... Um, then the bottom half of the chart is descent. You'll notice several of the ones are on both sides. Those are going up and coming down. They're sorties. Um, Most of these are reflights. There's a few new ones, and I'll try and point those out as we go along. I'm told you're kind of on a a time schedule, so I will try to fly through the next 12 charts. There's a lot of information, but um, uh, all that will be coming out in press kits and and, and from the ISS program science office. Next chart. Um, these are the powered payloads up front. We, this is the, just like Joe said, the MPLM is packed full. The mid-deck, is, this is the most time-critical science we've flown on any recent mission, so our team's really busy here. We've got the the CBTMs, Commercial Biomedical Test Modules. They're, they That is the name of the overall experiment. The hardware they're flying is the Animal Enclosure uh, Modules. That is legacy hardware for Ames that has flown several times over the, over the program. Um, it's a series of three experiments, and... Um, Examining uh, a potential drug and and for bone and muscle loss on orbit for astronauts. Uh, Down on the bottom is the Glacier, the um, freezer refrigerator that have been flying for the last several missions. It's there to carry samples to and from ISS that are being stowed and um, frozen to be back and analyzed back here on Earth. Um, It's going up empty, coming home uh, full with a bunch of stuff that's been stored up there in the Uh, Minus 80 uh, laboratory freezers, Melfi's. Next. Um, Continuing with the powered payloads, NLP vaccine 17, a long series of um, uh, experiments over the last few flights, last several flights, um, examining potential vaccines. I think one of the ones that that they started with was Salmonella. They've also started looking at MRSA and a couple of others. Um, This particular one's got some biofilms (laughs) I'm looking at in water systems. Um, and Micro4 also is looking at vaccines. Those two experiments are flying in legacy hardware from BioServe Technologies from the University of Colorado. Uh, The facility is called the Commercial Generic Bio Processing Apparatus, CGBA. And down on the lower right, STL, Space Tissue Loss, that's a DOD-sponsored facility payload. Again, uh, legacy um, hardware that's flown several times over the years. And they're looking at uh, wound healing and, and other um, tissue healing processes. Now on to the passives. Um, um, cold bag, um, like the like the glacier, it's there to carry um, samples to and from orbit. It's uh, going up, filled with um, the brick synergy experiment down at the bottom. Coming back, um, some of the brick synergies will come back in a cold bag, and um, otherwise more. Um, experiments listed there um, that have been stowed on station. Though, the, whereas the glacier can go, comes back at minus 95 degrees. Um, the cold bags will be at, be at either plus 4 or minus 32, depending. And they just rely on um, ice bricks to keep them cold. Brick synergy is an experiment that's been developed here at Kennedy Space Center, over in the Space Life Sciences Processing uh, or Space Life Sciences Lab, um, looking at plant growth and. Um, Symbiotic nodulation. <laughs> okay, come on, come on. Um, one of the decent payloads coming back is 2D nanotemplate. That's one of the JAX experiments looking at peptides and arrays. And um, another JAX experiment coming down looking at cucumber seedlings and the gravitropism and hydrotropism. Okay. Cube Lab 7 and 8, this is a company also known, uh, being sponsored by a company called NanoRacks. They've been flying a lot of things lately. Um, this particular experiment, 7 and 8, also flew on 134. They're looking at liquid mixing and protein crystal growths. Um, forward Osmosis Bag is another KSC-developed new payload. No, it's actually a technology demonstration of commercial off-the-shelf product, and it's designed to turn untreated water into a potable drink. So, again, that's one of our... Um, local experiments going up and coming back. HAIR is another JAX experiment uh, that's coming back in cold stowage, looking at um, uh, gene expression in the human body. Um, the suite of human research program experiments that have been um, ongoing um, for the last several years, looking at nutrition and uh, bisphosphonates, again, trying to to maximize the um, astronauts' health for long-term space missions. Next. Integrated immune, again, looking at the human um, human immune system, they mostly come back with blood and saliva samples. JAXA Commercial, didn't have a whole lot here, but they've been flying uh, various little things just to get the commercial industry and, and general public more interested in space. LMM Bio is um, a, a payload that we've flown up and down. Come, um, This one is samples coming back. They are demonstrating that they're... Um, Microscope, microscope that was been de- developed for uh, more fluid fluid physics type experiments can also image uh, bio- biology. Marangoni is a series of experiments that Jackson's been doing on orbit um, in the fluid physics realm. Micro three um, again Jackson's been busy. This one looking at um, crew member exposure to just ambient air. What kind of things are in the air there might grow and infect um, their health. NLP cell seven um, can, uh, also has flown several times. Um, cell cell growth, basically, and um, cell cultures. Next, plant signaling is uh, Ames-sponsored payload, uh, looking at um, plant growth. Um, Arabidopsis th- 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 thaliana is a common uh, uh, s- uh, sample that's been looked at. That's going up, and that one will stay and be used in the European Modular Cultivation System, EMCS. New one that's just been added to the flight most recently, recumbent attenuated salmonella vaccine. As it kind of indicates, it's continuing looking at the salmonella vaccine, getting closer and closer to something that can be developed and used here on Earth. So it's getting really exciting in that arena. I think one more slide. Sleep Short, that has been a continuing study for the astronauts just to see um, their sleep and wake patterns and their activity there, and your monitoring system, again, a continuing suite in the human research
3: development program. I think that's it. Yep. Yeah, Mark, um, one of the things that I heard a little bit of a chuckle with in there was something called the symbiotic modulation. And um, I, I just, just for giggles, I, I went ahead and I, I looked that up. And that is really interesting. There's a there's a uh, a little website that I've found called Science Storm. I I'm not going to go through the whole thing because it's 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 kind of it's kind of long winded. But it's but but it's if anybody's really interested to take a look at this, please do. Um, it it talks about uh, um, plants growing them in nat- in in the natural ecosystem and. Uh, um, it, it's it's kind of interesting.
2: So yeah, definitely check out the little notes there about symbiotic modulation, which is fun to say.
3: Yep, almost almost as fun as uh, was it of, uh <laughs> whatever whatever that was during
2: uh, tribo <laughs>
0: electrification. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> there it was. Uh, got one more thing, and this is an acronym I knew nothing about until the briefing. R R M. And if anybody else doesn't know what it means, I'll educate all of us. Robotic refueling mission. Huh. It's a new uh, mission. Another one of these never-been-done-before uh, efforts to, to this degree and with this amount of uh, research that they're doing. Joint effort between NASA and CSA. It's a, multi, uh, a multi-center a experiment or a multi-center project. It's going to involve Marshall. It's going to involve Goddard and Johnson Space Center. And what it is, it's going to take some hardware up to the ISS. It's going to be positioned on one of the trusses, and it's going to be worked on by the Space Station Remote Manipulating System and by the SPDM, Dexter, The uh, station robotic arm is going to hook up with Dexter. Dexter is going to go out to RRM, and with a fascinating collection of tools, they're going to demonstrate the capability of doing on-orbit refueling of legacy satellites. And legacy satellites, as I found out, are different types of connectors. They said basically there are three that have been used, um, and they're going to show that they can do things robotically that are going to save satellites that would be decommissioned otherwise. Uh, This is the first step towards a more capable US robotic space capability. They're going to demonstrate technologies for this. Uh, Um, Previously, think about what satellites are capable of being refueled. Number one ISS, previously the uh, Russian Mir And number three is a DARPA satellite called Orbital Express. And that's it. That's it. Everything else that goes up there goes up, depletes its propellant, and it's gone. That's the end of its life. Uh, Dexter's gonna use tools that were developed at Goddard. um, In geosynchronous orbit, there's in the neighborhood of 360 satellites. And there's also over 100 government satellites. They're going to demonstrate they have refueling capability and limited repair capability. Uh, They mentioned Telesat 14R that was launched, and its solar array did not fully deploy. 14R was preceded by Telesat 14, and its solar array did not fully deploy. Wouldn't it be nice if you could take a uh, a robotic uh, a robotic satellite up there and give a solar ray a little bump, a little nudge, see if it would free it, maybe save another whole multi-million dollar satellite from having to follow along and suffer the same fate. The RRM has a planned life of two years. Um, It's initially going to go from the LMC carrier, which will be placed on station. It'll be moved from there to another point where it'll possibly sit for up to a month or so, and the ISS crew will then transfer it to another location on station. This RRM has cameras on it. When Dexter picks it up, it'll provide power and it'll also provide signaling capability for camera views of the end effector of this. There's multiple tools on it. How big is it? It's about a one meter cubed. They're gonna have a flight replica of this at uh, Kennedy Space Center, the press site, for L-321 and launch day, where we will get a chance to see it and talk about it even more. Uh, It has some really cool tools. There's a wire cutting tool. There's a multifunction tool. There's a tertiary cap adapter. There's a tertiary cap tool. There's a safety cap tool. There's a nozzle tool with a hose. And when there's a a T-valve tool, there's a knurled, knurled cap tool. There's another device that allows them to go inside of a receptacle, remove a plug that's recessed and threaded that you can't see, and take it out. And when they do this stuff, it's a check in the boxes. to here's some stuff we can do on orbit that previously you had to send astronauts up to do. The, um, the man who was uh, talking to us, uh, Mr. Ben Reed, somebody asked him, you know, what's your what's your background? Where are you from? Um, actually, let me tell you about a question I asked. I asked him about how long ago did this start? And he said 18 months ago, Mr. Fix-It. His boss, Frank Cepolina, thought of this mission. They had no idea if it was going to fly on 135 or how they were going to get there, but they came up with a plan in 18 months, and here we go, ready to go to orbit. Um, They're looking for when they prove some capabilities, or as they start to prove capabilities at the ISS, they're going to have a commercial partner that will be selected competitively, and eventually, They've actually got a satellite in mind already that they want to do a refueling on. It's going to take some different tools because the stuff they developed for this mission was designed to be safe around humans, used on the ISS, and to use the capabilities of Dexter. So now when you build a satellite that you're going to send up to actually do refueling, it's going to have custom custom designed uh, for – and actually, they've already got an arm that's already built. It's a uh, – An NRL arm referred to as FREND, F-R-E-N-D. It was built with DARPA money, and they're going to design tools to go with those robotic arms. Uh, Ben Reed's team, they came from the Hubble servicing team. Think they can do some work on orbit? (laughs) The difference is, instead of having astronauts with their hands on the tools, it's going to be a robotic arm. Go ahead, Gene. I yeah. know you got a question.
3: Yeah, Mark. My, yeah, the the question I had was actually you just you answered one of them, but the other question I had too is is, is you think that this thing could be used to basically deorbit satellites safely that have ended their design life?
0: I imagine, uh, but their their primary purpose is, and and here's another statement that I found in my notes. He said eventually. Um, NASA, He said, NASA does not want to be in the business of refueling satellites. We want to be in the business, and this is what I really like that he said, we want to be in the business of developing technology for refueling sats, turning it over to the commercial industry. A new satellite servicing industry is going to develop from this and let that be a new revenue stream for the U.S. NASA does the hard part. They do the tools, the robotics. The first operation on a government-owned satellite, and then it's turned over to commercial. Um, To me, this, here you go. You get a satellite that's in the wrong orbit. It launches, it doesn't reach full orbit, but it's up there. It has to use its fuel to get to where it belongs. Okay, now it's used a tremendous amount of fuel and it's got a shortened life because it took that to get to geosynchronous orbit. Um, that's That's one life that it could save. Satellites with early failures. Maybe simple repairs could be done if it just flat runs out of fuel. Um, The satellite that they're planning to use would be a weather satellite. Uh, He was not free to provide the name for it. He said his boss might, but he was concerned with making the rest of his mortgage payments, so he wasn't (laughs) going to spill the beans on that. But it's a weather satellite that would deorbit itself in May of 2013. They're going to ask it to hold on for a year or so for us to get up there. They're going to go up there with a commercial partner. NASA is going to do this first refueling of a government satellite. Then they're going to turn it over to a commercial partner and they're going to let them go do some on orbit refueling. And when they're done, the government will do another, uh, NASA will do another government satellite. And then options will be considered as to whether they're going to refuel the bird or deorbit, and dispose of it. Now, I'm talking about two separate things. I'm talking about the robotic refueling mission, this testing that's going to be done with all these different tools that I rattled off at the ISS. And then a future follow-on to that that they're planning for, they can see this happening, is going to be the actual work of, of, of touching satellites that uh, that need some need some help.
3: Mark, they didn't mention who the commercial partner is at this point, or would that nope, be?
0: That's, okay. that's that's There's going to be an RFI that will go out. That's going to be bid competitively, and uh, may the best best man win. I guess.
3: Yeah, this is going to be quite quite. Uh, it looks like there's a, uh, another brand new uh, industry about ready to be born. First, we have the uh, the space launch uh, capabilities, and now we have uh, satellite refueling. So this is going to be kind of
0: interesting to watch. And this is one of the things I felt for a long time. You got to have a financial reason that working in space makes sense. And this makes sense because he said that (laughs) Uh, don't ask an engineer to do an economic analysis. (laughs) But he said the savings that could be produced from this kind of an industry is probably into the billions.
3: It it sounds like initially this because this was the whole reason one of the whole reasons why the space shuttle came came to be was to go ahead and try to go ahead and service satellites while on orbit. But uh, it proved to be well not exactly economical to do via shuttle. But I'm sure that some of the lessons learned from shuttle. I mean, it's an exciting time. A lot of new industries about ready to be born.
0: Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it and the tools. He brought one of the tools that we got to got to look at. I mean, you can pick it up in one hand. In fact, he's holding it, and you could see the size of it, and um, it's really cool. It's it's fascinating. I'm looking forward to having more uh, that we'll be able to, to see firsthand and, and, you know, love to have some videos available that will probably come out, too, that people can see some of this.
3: And hopefully, Mark, um, they'll have some material that maybe we can go ahead and share with our listeners um, at the L minus two and L minus uh, one uh, presentations. We'll go ahead and try to see if we can post that material up.
0: Oh, and, and to give you an idea of how much how close this is to the real deal, they've got a on this tool that goes on Dexter. You know, they change tools, one to take this cap off, one to cut the safety wire, one to take this other cap off, one to open this valve, and then a nozzle, which actually has a hose hooked to it, that they connect to it. And then Marshall turns on the pumps, and they actually pump ethanol through the fitting that they've just connected to as a test to show that they can actually pump rocket fuel in and, you know, from this – from the RRM to a payload.
3: I'm just thinking too. I mean, I mean, it it may not stick to satellites either. I mean, we're talking possibly refueling. Are we talking about possibly refueling uh, other spacecraft, like maybe going out to uh, to the moon or even to Mars with 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 this type of uh, this type of system?
0: I think possibly, but I think you're going to have to see some advances in propulsion to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, although they do phenomenal things with you know uh, you know a few grams of fuel here and there, um, it's, it opens up a lot of possibilities.
2: All right, so before we get off topic of STS-135, Talking Space has a big announcement, which once again, Talking Space will be at the Kennedy Space Center for the final launch of the Space Shuttle program. Yes, Talking Space will be there for the launch of STS-135. However, this is a first. For the first time ever, all four of us will be at the Kennedy Space Center at the same time, covering it live. So that means that it won't be uh, Gene and myself again and Gina from Talking Space Headquarters. We will all be in Florida. So remember to tune in to astronomy.fm, the date being July 8, 2011. Coverage is currently scheduled to begin around 11, but stay tuned to talkingspaceonline.com for more updates on exact times, locations, and how you can listen to us live. That is, if the world doesn't explode from all of us being in the same place at the same time.
3: Yeah, I still say that uh, having us all in the same room is going to cause a rip in the space-time continuum.
2: Now, straying away a little bit from 135 and uh, the payloads and everything, I believe sticking a little bit with Shuttle, there was an interesting comment, Mark, that you noticed from
0: Mike Leinbach? Yes, sure did.
2: Can you explain that a little bit to us, please?
0: Um, Mike Kleinbach made a statement to his team, and uh, here's a transcript from it. He said, for the final S-0044 folks, what I'm about to say would not be appropriate on launch day, and this is our last chance to talk together. The end of the shuttle program is a tough thing to swallow, and we're all victims of poor policy out of Washington, D.C., both at the NASA level and at the executive branch of the government, and it affects all of us, and it affects most of all you severely. I'm embarrassed that we don't have better guidance out of Washington, D.C. Throughout the history of the manned spaceflight program, we've always had another program to transition to, into from Mercury to Gemini and to Apollo and to the Apollo-Soyuz test program to Skylab and then to the shuttle. We've always had something to transition into. And we had that, and it got canceled, and now we don't have anything, and I'm embarrassed that we don't. Frankly, as a senior NASA manager, I'd like to apologize to you all that we don't have that. So there you There you are. I love you all. I wish you all the best. We'll press on through this flow and this launch in the way we always do. We're going to play this game to the final out, and then we'll be done. I just wish you all the best, and again, Godspeed to you all. Thank you. Um, um,
3: Mark, who who was that addressed to? I'm just curious. Was it just addressed to the team? or?
0: That was to that was to the team.
3: Yeah, it it just because this is he's saying stuff that we've said here um, a, a few times, and it's just it, it I, I I feel the same way. It just seems like we've always had a program. I mean, even with with, with Apollo's demise, um, we knew Shuttle was in the pipeline, uh, and we don't know what's in the pipeline right now. We think it's the multipurpose Crew Vehicle, and we think it's the um, space Launch System, but uh, again, we're not sure. Um, so I guess we're it, it's stay tuned, and it is embarrassing, and hopefully we'll get our act together. But I'm I'm with uh, I'm with Mr. Weinbach
0: on this. Apparently, from what I read, this was uh, probably one of their final launch sims. Still sad. Yeah, it is. And true, it, it takes somebody of, of his caliber and character and reputation. To to say this and to not be concerned with the repercussions because he's, he's served the program, he's served NASA well, and he's certainly entitled to an opinion. If anybody begrudges him that, you know, bad, bad, bad.
2: Amen. Yeah, I was glad he got a chance to actually say that, you know, to not be restricted by the whole, you know, your work for the government thing, but to actually be able to go out and say what he truly felt about how the way that they're handling this is great, and it's nothing that people weren't expecting. I mean, they probably, if it was announced at a big public thing, they would have expected him to say, oh, it's sad that the program's ending, but we're looking forward to the next program. But just to be able to be candid like that, i got to give him credit.
3: This might be a good transition point, folks, for the, uh, the next story.
2: I think it is as well,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which... Our next story refers to a memo that was sent out on June 10th. The subject of this memo, Constellation is Dead.
3: Yeah, it's official. Uh, Doug Cook basically wrote, uh, and I'm quoting here from a uh, Space News article on their website published on Tuesday, uh, June 14th, and this is Doug Cook saying this. He was the... uh, uh, Again, he's he was was the uh, program lead for for Constellation, um, but I guess now he's the, uh, the the program lead for the follow-up program, whatever that follow-up program is. But uh, to quote him, quote, I have signed the letter to close out the Constellation program. Uh, With Constellation's demise now official, the project office, which has already kind of sort of scaled back in size significantly, will be charged with transitioning contracts, et cetera, to the new space launch system and the multi-purpose crew vehicles and programs. But my feeling, my thoughts on this, is Constellation really dead? Um, We had just a few days ago uh, the space launch system. Uh, the announcement for that is going to be, <laughs> oddly enough, it's going to be July 8th, of, uh, which is the same day that uh, Atlantis is going to launch. So uh, that announcement of what that space launch system's configuration is going to be will be then. And gang, how much you want to bet that that it's going to shockingly look like Ares 5? I, I That's my prediction. Um, we do have the multi-purpose crew vehicle, which, oddly enough, looks like Orion. Um, so is Constellation really dead? Because you know, we've got two core systems that are coming out from, from the ashes of Constellation. So is the program really dead? Or are we slowly going to go ahead and accomplish its objectives?
2: Well, that's just like asking, is Shuttle dead? Because most of the systems that they're going to be using are based on shuttle technology. So it's like asking the same question.
3: Yeah, and and for um, for those of you who are kind of sort of interested, uh, the multipurpose crew vehicle, uh, at least the test article for it, uh, is going to be on tour. It just completed a stop at the uh, Pima Air and Space Museum in Tucson, Arizona, and this is from, from SpaceRef reporting this, also on June 14th. Um, It looks like uh, it had just completed today, uh, the 19th and 20th, a stop at uh, the Texas State History Museum in Austin. Uh, June 24th and 25th, it's heading out to the Tallahassee Challenger Center in Florida. And finally, it will make a stop at the Kennedy Space Center uh, on June 29th through July 4th. Unfortunately, gang, we're just going to miss it. But uh, uh, for folks who are so inclined, uh, mark your calendars now. Um, but uh, to me, it just seems kind of odd that, you know, for a dead program, it pieces of it are still going to be alive and well, and will probably probably be leveraged for the for whatever the follow up program really is.
4: Well, I I would think that they would want to leverage old technologies or current technologies. So I thought that was the point, anyways, of a lot of the constellation system, that they were going to leverage the solid rocket booster technology from shuttle and, you know, certainly going back to capsules, I'm sure they have pages of lessons learned from Apollo. So, you know, why reinvent the wheel? Let's just make it more efficient.
3: It's just the idea, too, that... um, uh, Everybody was saying, "Well, the Constellation program was just really, really worthless," and all this. Um, a lot of people were running around trying to make it work, and it just seems like pieces of it are going to be moving moving ahead uh, for a program that was that was a lot of people criticized. Uh, there are two critical pieces that I think are think are going to be be carried over with it, and that's of course the the Orion or whatever the heck they're going to be calling it. Right now it's the multipurpose Crew Vehicle. I'm sure it's going to be renamed something. Um, and the Space Launch System, which oddly enough I will guarantee you guys is going to be Ares Five. So you know, is Constellation again? I put it to 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 you folks again: Is Constellation really dead? Or are we are we just slowly carrying it out, carrying out its objectives, rather than than saying, okay, we're going back to the moon. Are we just gonna just sort of do it by, you know, doing it not as not as quickly as we thought we were going to, but just slowly accomplish some of these objectives? It's a thought.
2: We'll find out because I believe they're actually gonna be making an announcement on the final date of the shuttle launch on July eighth about. The future launch configuration, even.
3: Yeah, and and again, that's what I'm saying. I will guarantee you, folks, that it's going to look like like Aries five. Um, so it it it's I, I hope hope we're we're going to also be there to cover the uh the announcement because I'm sure even if it's not taking place over at Kennedy over at Kennedy, we're we're going to have the opportunity to ask questions from there. So it sh- should be an interesting day. Be very very busy news day on the eighth.
2: Now, before we stray away from all these shuttle and launch topics, Mark, I believe you're going to have some very exciting footage for us within the next couple of days as you head down to the Kennedy Space Center, huh?
0: And so at the end of April, uh, when we were there for Endeavor's first launch attempt, Gene, you went to the OPF, and you got to walk around Discovery. And I was so envious I didn't really have much to do that day. I got to talk to some shuttle astronauts. And, oh
3: yeah, you got to know. talk to a bunch of shuttle astronauts, and you got to talk to uh, Dr. Tara Rutley. Oh
0: darn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a rough day. I I, I made the sacrifice for uh, for talking space, and <laughs> uh, and you brought us you know some great stories. But TCDT's coming up. Terminal Countdown Test Demonstration starts the twentieth crew arrival. Continues the 21st with Discovery Media Day. Now, this ain't no slouch walk around and look at the orbiter because I asked for and was picked to be part of a smaller number of the media. And in my case, I get 15 minutes inside the Discovery crew compartment with some other folks, one of which oh. I one of which I understand and look forward to being Robert Perlman from Collect Space. Oh, cool. <laughs> So, uh, so inside the crew compartment, um, it says we're not allowed to sit in the commander of pilot seats. No problem. <laughs> I'm not going to be that greedy. Uh, there'll be a shuttle control officer responsible for working in the con- the crew module we'll get to talk to for interviews. And also outside in the OPF, the rest of the hour that I'll be there, get to talk to Stephanie Stilson that I've talked to before. She's now the shuttle transition retirement flow director. There'll be a payload based specialist and an aft technician. And I am so excited about this coming Tuesday, the 21st, and uh, getting to go get to see Discovery. I know it was a thrill for you, but to be able to actually go on board and see what it's like on the inside, I'm going to record. I'll take some pictures. I'm not a photographer, but I'll get something and uh, I'll share it with you as soon as we get together again on Talking Space.
3: Mark, to the words, I'm jealous. Does anything mean anything
0: to you? <laughs> oh man. Hey, I'm telling you, as far as I know, the state line allows people to come through without without any particular papers or, or passports or approvals. So, you know, hey, come on down.
3: Oh, it's so tempting, I'll tell you. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the report, oh, though, Mark. I'm serious. And,
0: and dedication to NASA. Do you know when I got this email? Talk to me. As, as we record this, it is Sunday, June 19th. I got this email at 12.35 a.m. Wow. So the <laughs> News Center folks, at midnight for them on a Saturday night, were working on this list and getting the information out to the media. Wow. Ooh, thank you, folks. Thank you, folks. It's not just a a 40-hour-a-week job. I know that they're really giving it everything they got going into this last flight. They're not going to take a chance, certainly not. They don't want to disappoint the media. They don't want to disappoint the American public, and and they're really coming through, and I appreciate that.
2: And I thank you, Mark, for sacrificing your Tuesday to go down and be inside the space shuttle.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited. I really am.
2: Oh, I I cannot wait to see these pictures. I want to see you standing there inside Discovery, flicking all the switches. Okay.
0: Can I? Can we simulate weightlessness somehow? Nah, nah. Nah, I I don't think that's gonna work. That, that, no. that should have been the diet I started like ten years ago. <laughs> all I'm gonna
2: suggest is don't use the toilet on board. Okay.
0: Oh, geez. good move. Good move. Yeah. Okay. Not going there. I, I Not the, going I there. The, I can see the wisdom of that.
3: Just yeah. not going there. I'm not. I'm not touching that. Not on a bet.
0: I just had a joke that I'm
2: gonna hold back on because it's not good fun. man. <laughs> All right, so let's finish off on a note that we normally don't touch, and that's actually political. And <laughs> well, we touch politics, but not actual real world like election politics. Like a debate that was held that actually happened to mention the space program in it, and this was in Vermont
3: it was actually a new hampshire story i always um, get
2: the two mixed up
3: yep um this uh was presented by uh, by cnn it occurred uh, last monday um and um i have to go ahead and t- give a tip of the hat to a, a lady by the name of jean Macklin from uh, uh hancock new hampshire she was the one who asked the following question, and I am quoting directly from the transcript that was presented on the NASA Watch website uh, dated June fourteenth, 2011. Um, she says, this question goes out to Speaker Gingrich. Next month, the space shuttle program is scheduled to retire after 30 years, and last year President Obama effectively killed the government-run flight of the um, to the International Space Station and wants to turn it over to private companies. In the meantime, US astronauts will ride Russian spacecraft to the cost of um, and she says fifty million, it's actually fifty million to sixty three million dollars a seat. What role should government play in the future of space exploration? And I take a little umbrage with Mr. Gingrich's response. He said this quote well, sadly, and I say this sadly because I'm a big fan going into the, in, in, of going into space, and I actually worked to get the space shuttle program to survive at one point, NASA has become an absolute case study of why bureaucracy can innovate cannot innovate. If you take all the money we spent on NASA since we've landed on the moon, and you apply that money to incentives... For to the private sector, we would today probably have a permanent space station on the moon, three or four permanent space stations in orbit, a new generation of heavy lift vehicles, and instead what we have is bureaucracy after bureaucracy after bureaucracy and failure after failure after failure, close quote. Um, Mark, with, with all with, – with, as demonstrated as as demonstrated uh, in your discussion earlier about this new way of uh, refueling satellites, um, <laughs> I think Mr. Gingrich is all wet, quite frankly, as far as NASA being being uh, a, a fa- an abject failure, at being able to innovate. I mean, give me a break. Um, they are always they are about innovation, innovation in plain English. And as you said, they will go ahead develop this thing, and then finally turn it over to the private sector for um, uh, for exploitation. So, you know, I I just can't buy buy this. Gina, what do you think on this?
4: Well, I have a lot of opinions about this. First of all, I just want to be careful to give. Uh, too much prominence to a candidate who probably won't last much more than a couple months in this race considering his entire top executive campaign staff has resigned and left him so before we give him too much credence i'd say this i think he's um i think he's wrong on a lot of accounts one um you know he's a politician he's not an engineer and no matter in any kind of engineering environment innovative bureaucratic or not um, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get off the drawing board, and I think probably from a congressional perspective, there looks like a lot of failures because they probably had to fund um, exploratory committees for a certain kind of rocket or space plane, and these are things that never materialized other than, you know, or assigning some resources to seeing if they could make it work. Well. That's what an engineer does. Some things work, some things don't. And you move on and you go to the next thing. So his comment about failures and failures and failures is totally out of bounds. Second of all, you know, as the politician, he should know first off that the reason why we stopped going to the moon was because of politics. It had nothing to do with NASA's success. We stopped going to the moon because of politics. It was you know, we had gotten good at it. NASA was a victim of its own success. The Vietnam War was costing us a lot of money. Gee, sound familiar? Where are we today? So, again, politics had nothing to do with NASA. NASA could have continued to go to the moon for another 20 missions, I'm sure. We barely explored less than the size of Rhode Island while we were there. And third, I think Mr. Gingrich, as a congressman, needs to understand what is... um, what federal agencies do. NASA's not just about space exploration. He's missed huge components of what the agency does in terms of earth science, solar system exploration, and aviation research and development. And Pretty sad that, you know, as a congressman or the Speaker of the House at, for a while, he doesn't recognize that such a prominent agency to the American people do more than just human space flight. So, disappointing all around I give those comments two thumbs way down but again I think a lot's already been said on this amongst us because he he's not going to play a role in this election that's just um, my prediction and'm um, I'm, I'm pretty certain he you know he's not going come any close to come close at all to being the GOP frontrunner for 212.
3: Yeah, I, Gina, no, hands down, I agree with you on that one. Uh, what what really frightened me, though, is uh, the the moderator uh, was trying to get the other candidates to to talk about this, and I'll, I'll quote him from from the transcript quote Is there any other candidate who would want to step up and say no? This this is vital to America's identity. It's vital to America and America's innovation. I want government to stay in the lead here when it comes to manned spaceflight. Nobody and, – and all you heard were, were crickets for a little while, well, um, which, which, which frightened a field of, me.
4: You're talking about a field of people that know their biggest support right now, the whole tea party. They don't want to spend any money. Cut, 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 cut. cut. And these guys are scared senseless. you got Mitt Romney up there who is responsible for health care in the state I live in and now – he doesn't even want to associate with some a positive program that he put in into place. These guys don't know what to say. Because out yeah. the the heart of the tea party would tell you to defund NASA and the hell with it. Cut my taxes. I don't want to pay another dime.
3: Well, again to and this might again Gina back you up a little bit. Uh Tim Palente finally went ahead and and dived into the fray. He, he basically said uh, quote, yeah, I think the space program has played a vital role role forward in the United, United States. I think it, in context, and the moderator interrupted them saying, yes, but can we afford it going forward? And Plenty continued, in the context of our budget challenges, it can be refocused and reprioritized. But I don't think we should be talking about eliminating the U.S. space program. We can partner with private providers to get more economies of of scale and quote scale it back but i don't think we should eliminate the space program
1: let's
4: let's let's give some credit where credit is due the federal agency nasa put man on the moon mm-hmm. the government did this mm-hmm. and you know it's it there's a lot of people out there that don't even want to recognize that because that would mean they'd have to admit that government actually had a function and, and pulled something off that was quite remarkable so, you know, I I won't I won't make any further comments on that. But <laughs> it, it, I, it, I I think I think we're a long way away from the uh, two twelve election having any serious dialogue on human spaceflight and NASA's future.
3: Yeah, but it 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 just scares me a little bit to to hear some one of the one of the gentlemen who supposedly is is one of the front runners in that in that field say we can, you know, scale the space program back. It's difficult to wrap my head around that because for the simple reason you can't scale this thing back any further than it has been already. You go ahead and you do that, and 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 you're you're basically stuck. I mean, we're not even too sure if we have the money to put the space launch launch system together. So you know, uh, it, it the whole thing just didn't make any sense. And 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 the fright again, the frightening thing was nobody else st- stepped up to the plate and and had a had a They're stance. They're afraid on to this.
4: say anything. They're not going to say let's give NASA some more money. Their their major support base is saying cut. Cut, cut, none of them are gonna say anything. That's why.
3: Yeah, it's it's scary. They're
4: all and they're you know, they're all living from, you know, day to day polls and you know, if they had misspoke about let's face it, most of them probably really don't even know enough about the space program to probably really make a qualified statement and have had the opportunity to poll what they think is their support based on how they feel. None of them were gonna speak about that. At that um, at that debate it just wasn't going to happen because they really would have had to go out on a limb to do it. And I don't think any of them, excuse my French, have the balls to do so.
3: I got to give you the last word. <laughs> I got to give you the last word on that one. I, I, I don't have a follow up. I mean, you, you, you basically said exactly what I was thinking.
2: So I guess on that note, I think that we are finished with this episode. So, once again, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you, Gene McCulka.
3: I had a lot of fun tonight, Sawyer. Uh, can't wait to hear what Mark has in store. And, Gina, thanks
0: for the lively debate.
3: Thank
2: Anytime.
0: you.
2: Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman.
0: You know, this is one of those nights I really enjoy because I didn't have to go to my happy place to settle down tonight because I've been <laughs> there since about 24 hours ago when I found out I was going to be going inside Discovery. So, uh, thank you all. I appreciate the fact that it was Talking Space that got me there. It sure as heck wasn't Mark Ratterman. <laughs> and uh, I'm looking forward to everything we've got to talk about during the next month and two months because there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of good things to, to bring to our listeners.
3: And just to interject, gang, I'm looking forward to working with every single one of you again um, in person uh, in the next couple of weeks. So I'm 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 really looking forward to that.
2: On, I can't believe we're all going to be in the same place under the same tent. I know.
3: Tent. I know. I can't wait.
2: And thank you as well for joining us. Gina Herlihy. Uh,
4: anytime. I would be very happy to debate space politics with anyone. So bring it on.
2: I wouldn't want to go against you. You are a (laughs) debater.
3: I'm learning a lot.
2: (laughs) I know. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening, and as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.